But let's read God's Word, shall we, just now, and then we'll sing again after that. We're going to read, first of all, from the book of the prophet Isaiah. We, we've been reading, we were reading Isaiah before Christmas. Um, I'm not going to preach on Isaiah this morning, but this reading perhaps helps us think about Epiphany. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and His glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the hip. Then you will look and be radiant, and your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth of the seas will be brought to you. To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephath and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense and proclaiming the praise of the Lord. And then we read the familiar story from Matthew chapter 2 of the coming of the wise men. But just listen to the story, because as I, as I prepared to preach this morning, and I was looking at this, I kept getting surprised by it, because there's a bit about the, the, the nativity story that we think we know it so well, because we've seen the children act it out, and we've watched all the different films about it. But when we hear God's Word, sometimes it catches us by surprise. So let's hear the Word of God from Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least of the among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time when the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I, too, may go and worship him. And after they'd heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. 
Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to Your Word, we pray that Your Spirit would touch us as we contemplate it together that this time might be a time of drawing close to you. We ask it in your name. Amen. Oop. Once upon a time, there was a ruler, and his name was Herod. By a lot of maneuvering and sucking up to Romans, he became the puppet king in Judea. His people didn't trust him very much, partly because he was only a little bit Jewish, and secondly, because he lived in that Roman world, that pagan world, that political world that they weren't very sure about, so he wanted to ingratiate himself with them, and so he did something. He took the temple in Jerusalem that had been rebuilt some years before, and he decided to make it one of the wonders of the world. It cost him an absolute fortune, or rather, it cost the taxpayer an absolute fortune. It took years. In fact, it wouldn't be completed until after Herod had died. It was still possibly being built at the time that Jesus came to as an adult. It cost so much. It was known as wonder, one of the wonders of the ancient world, and we know that the pilgrims flocked to it from all over the world. And why not? It wasn't just that it was a beautiful building, but there was a real sense of history there, and there was a real sense that God somehow had made that a special place. The original temple built by Solomon all those years ago had been the place where they had brought the Ark of the Covenant that had been with Moses. It had had that place where, where, where they came to meet with God, where they came to have sins forgiven, where they came to know His will. It was a place where God had said it would be a sign that He would dwell with His people, that they would be His people, that they would know His presence there in the heart of the world, in the heart of Jerusalem. Matthew, in the first chapter, spoke of the fact that God again was coming among His people. Emmanuel, God with us at that time. Finally, as the prophets had promised, but here is the thing in this story. God wasn't coming in Jerusalem. He wasn't coming to a temple. He wasn't coming to a religious establishment, but He was coming as a baby in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem was six miles away, six miles, such a small difference, and yet it made so much. And then enter into the story the three wise men. I was struck as I, as I, as I looked at this of, of, of some things that I hadn't really thought about very deeply. I, the first is that the wise men were late. 
Herod said to them when he met with them, when did you see the star? And they said, well, you know, before we left. That would have been months before. In fact, the way the story is set up, when they came and they found the baby eventually, it was perhaps as much as two years later. They weren't sitting there with a manger anymore, with the stable or whatever was there. They were in a house after the crowds had left to the census, Jesus, uh, Joseph had obviously found a place for them to stay, the new mum and the new dad. So these travelers were late. Well, that's not new for Christmas travelers, is it, if you've had guests coming at Christmas? Uh, but not only that, they were lost. They were in the wrong place. It says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, they came to Jerusalem. God wasn't in Jerusalem. He was six miles to the south. They came to the religious establishment, but God wasn't there with the religious establishment. He was six miles to the south. It had started, obviously, for the wise men with this astrological event. And the Bible doesn't tell us what it was. There's a lot of speculation among scholars. Was it that the stars had aligned or the planets were in line? There was a, an alignment of Jupiter, which represented kings, and Saturn, which represented Judea. And perhaps these came together and gave them a sign, or perhaps it was a supernatural star. We don't know. But it convinced them of this, that there was a king born in Judea. And that story that a king was supposed to come to Judea, we know, was actually a rumor that had gone for centuries around the whole of the ancient world. The Roman historian Suetonius records that even the Romans had heard this story that someday there would be a king come out of Judea who would rule over all the nations. And it convinced them that not only was a king being born in Judea, but this was a special king. This was a divine king. This was a king worthy of honor. This was a king worthy of worship. And so they came. Now, the Bible doesn't say, this is one of the strange things, that they came to Jerusalem following a star all those miles. The star that they followed came a bit later. It said they saw this astrological event and they went to Jerusalem. They didn't go to Jerusalem because a star was shining over Jerusalem. They went there because logic told them that was the place to go. It was the capital of Judea. Not only that, it had a king, a Roman king called Herod, and he had a palace. And if you were going to look for a new king, that was a sensible place to go. Not only that, if they knew that this king was special, this king was Emmanuel, this king was divine, then that was the place of the temple, of the religious establishment. Where do you go to look for something when you're looking for something spiritual? You go to a big spiritual building full of spiritual people who have got spiritual books and spiritual answers, and you think, that's where I'm going to find God. And so they came to Jerusalem, but God wasn't in Jerusalem. He was six miles to the south. I'm left wondering... When people come to church, perhaps to a service, or perhaps they drop in at one of our events, or they join one of our organizations, or they come to one of our outreach events, whatever we're doing, if they come with hearts that are saying, I'm looking for answers, I'm looking for God, 
do they find it here? Are we the place and the community where people can find Jesus? Or are we six miles away being the religious establishment? Which are we? Sometimes the church is so busy being the church, running the church, propagating the church, defending the church, cleaning the church, decorating the church, enjoying the church, that it has stopped being the place where people find Jesus. Worship Jesus. Talk about Jesus. Where broken folk can actually come and find this reality that we say that we believe. Is that the place we want to be? Or are we six miles out? Are we a place where folk who come seeking will come and they will hear the Scripture read and lived? where they find prayer surrounding everything. It's one of the reasons that one of the marks of a church is prayer. Not just because prayer is important, it's vital, but because prayer, if that's at the heart of what we do, is actually saying that we're about God, first and foremost. The activities follow and, and flow from that. And I, I really do hope this chain that we have with the children, it's fallen apart, we'll fix it up, that you'll put more and more on it. There's, there's cards there. Take them away. Write, write some prayers, and we'll put it around, but not just as a paper chain or as a symbol, but actually might represent as we go into this new year that we are going to put prayer at the heart of everything that we do. Um, Eric and others were, were, were reminding us before to meet for prayer in the prayer room before the services, and I think that's one of the things that we should be doing, and if you can come, come and join us, but even if you can't make that, make this a year of prayer. Please, will you pray this year for our congregation, for our church? Not just that God will bless it and give us new members or, or make the finances work, but actually that we would all have a sense when we come to worship that Jesus is here. And that would excite us and that would drive whatever mission plans or activities we do. As we're, as we're, and many of you give up a lot of time to run things and do things and serve in things. You're doing youth work, boys brigade, girls brigade, all sorts of other things. As we do those things, we would have a sense that we are actually doing this because we believe that people can find Jesus and come to know Him. Are we the real deal? Or are we the religious establishment? The sad thing was that these wise men, they were pagans. But they were pagans doing horoscopes and, and star signs and all sorts of things that believers shouldn't be doing. But as they did that, they had a heart for something. They wanted a reality. And I think that there are lots of people in our community today that have a heart. That's why lots of folks say, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. It, it, is it part of them saying, I'm looking for something? But sadly, when these men, despite the fact they traveled that huge distance, they encountered a religious establishment and not God. A religious establishment that weren't even looking for Jesus. Did they not see that star sign? doesn't look that different from Judea to Babylon. 
Did they not read that book that they had that told them about Bethlehem? Were they not searching for something that was real in that temple as they prayed? We know some of them were. We know Zechariah had been. We know, we, we, we know Elizabeth. We know Simeon and Anna later on. They were really praying that, that, that God would come, Emmanuel would come. But what about the rest of them? What are we looking for in this new year? Are we looking for Jesus and we want to find him? There is something else about Magi that are really important in this story. And, and, and part of that is a symbol of what the mission of Jesus is about. And in Luke's gospel, we have the shepherds. And the shepherds remind us that Jesus comes to ordinary folk, the folk who just lived down the road, they were on the fields nearby, um, the poor. Jesus is for them. But on the other hand, we have these magi. They represent maybe the rich, the outsider, the pagan, and the person that's from miles away. And the gospel is for them too. And so, as you look at that stable, all right, they weren't there at the same time, and we see the shepherds and we see the magi, we get this sense of this God who's come for people from whatever sphere, inviting them to come and find Jesus. I was... Uh, reminded of that this week in, in, a, in a different symbol. I was in the church, I think it was Friday, and we had two things going on. In the room next door, we had a warm space with soup that we are providing through the winter, which was for everybody, and it was bringing in local folks that were just coming in to have a chat, have some soup, be in a place together. And as that was going on in that room, there was a gentleman who came through and he asked to come into the church and he, he sat down in, in, in the church here and I came after a while and I began to, to speak to him. He just came in to pray. Um, he spoke with a, an African accent and so I very tentatively asked him where he was from uh, and he said Edinburgh, which is just a reminder. But actually, as we chatted together, his story was bigger than that because He'd lived in Holland and Israel and England. And in all these different places he, 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 he was living, he, he said to me, he, he kept going into churches because he was looking for God in those places. And that's why he'd come into that place today. And it was just that moment when I suddenly realized this gospel of God was for folk who'd come from afar into a holy place looking for something. And this gospel was for local folk who'd come for a bowl of soup with us as well. It's for everybody, a gospel for all. But sometimes we miss that because we're so trying to be the religious establishment and keep the religious establishment going and the religious establishment feels threatened that we forget it. You know, there's something else in this story that, that I, I just noticed yesterday and it was this. The wise men had come, it just says from the east, a lot of folk think that's probably Babylon direction, in which case they'd traveled uh, about 900 miles, only they still had six to go. So they traveled, uh, I, I'm, tell the prime minister I've done my maths, uh, that's 894 miles, and they still had six to go. But here's the thing, they traveled 894 miles, they got to the religious establishment, and somebody said it's over there. And you, know, you look at that when it says they followed the star, and you think that's fantastic, wonderful, having a star to guide you. And I'm thinking, could nobody have taken them? 
Could nobody among all those priests and all those Levites and all those folk that run a temple have said, I'll take you to Bethlehem. And, and by the way, if you're looking for the king that we're all longing for is to be born in Bethlehem, I'd love just to come with you right now. Let's go. Not one person did that. They said, it's over there. What type of, of leadership, spiritual leadership is this, that nobody was willing to go with them to Bethlehem, to lead them there, to look with them, to search them, to go with them to the journey? You know, I, 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 I went into a house one time and, and started to have a conversation, and, and as I was talking to the, 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 the lady of the house was a member, and, and I was chatting to her, and, and as we started to talk, her husband began to ask me all sorts of questions about faith and, and what the meaning of this was and how, how you understood the Bible and what did I believe, and he, he wanted to know more and more. And, and we were there about an hour chatting. At the end of it, he said, oh, I'm sorry I've kept you. I know that's not why you came. And I thought, what do you think I'm here for? What do you think the church is here for? What do you think the elders are doing when they visit? What do you think we're supposed to be doing together if it's not sharing with people about Jesus? Folks, just say this. See when somebody does come through the door of a church, if they've got no church background, they've come 894 miles, even if they've just lived down the road, because they've taken a huge step into a different world that they possibly know nothing about. Can you please go the last six with them? The last six with them, of just opening up a little, of making it easy for them, of inviting them through for coffee. That's the little bits of it. And that's what mission, in a sense, is doing, even as we, whatever we're doing in our activities, we're recognizing that sometimes God has brought people spiritually 894 miles, and He's just simply saying, can you help me? Can you be involved with this privilege of taking them the last six? just been open to talk about what Jesus means. It's as simple, as simple, and as magnificent as that. Are we the real deal, or are we the religious establishment? You know, one of the things that being a parish church means at its root that's different from being a congregational church is this. We are set up constitutionally by the Church of Scotland to be the church for our community not the church for our members. And sometimes we think that the mission is about getting more members so we can keep our church going. It's not. The mission is and has always been to testify and share and love in Jesus' name in the midst of our parish and our community or the, all the places that you live and work as well. That's what it means. It's actually what every church should be about, but it's specifically one of the foundational thoughts of the Church of Scotland. We don't always get it right. Sometimes we are, very often we are the religious establishment, but we are supposed to be there for those last six miles with people. I love the fact here is a parish church in the middle of the community, and here's another symbol right next door to us. We have the Glow Center, which has a particular vision, not that we shouldn't have it too, for the whole of the world and for mission. Local and universal, shepherds and magi. That's what the church is there to serve. And then there's Herod. Herod hearing that God has done something. And what is he? He's disturbed. He's disturbed. There he is there. 
Herod had become king in, in 37 BC, and the one thing Herod was determined to do is stay king. He did that by politics a little bit. Um, you know, all these, these leadership elections, we've watched how people have changed their allegiance. Well, Herod did that as well. He started off in the Roman Civil War by backing a chap called Mark Antony. Mark Antony was one of the reasons that Herod became king. Mark Antony got defeated by Augustus, uh, and so Herod just switched sides and, and suddenly cozied up to this new emperor. That was Herod. He also was a, a king who was all the time watching his own dynasty with a paranoia. You, we think of Henry VIII having six wives. Herod had 20. He was there way before Herod VIII. And if you think our current king has some problems with his sons, Herod had huge problems with his. He had 20 of them. Um, or more than 20 of them, loads and loads of them. They fought, they tried to grab the throne from him, all sorts of things, and he was completely paranoid to the point he was putting them to death to make sure he would stay in power. And so here is a man who feels threatened. He's a little king of a little part of the Roman Empire, but he's determined to keep his little puppet kingdom going, whatever happens. But the thing is, actually, we can be a little bit like Herod as well, you know, God there and, and, and worshiping, that's all fine, but I'm in control of this little bit of my life, and I'm not ceding any of it to God. So, uh, church is fine, and religion is fine, as long as it'll fit in with what I want to do, because I'm in charge. I'll fit it in when it's convenient. I'll fit it in the way it is. I'll reinterpret it around the things I think are true. But here's the thing. If God is really God, if He is worth worshiping, if you are going to Him as King and Lord to worship Him, then it's going to change things. I'm going to have to surrender things to him. Maybe the ethical things, the, 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 the values of this king aren't my values. And by the way, then mine have to change, not his. So many folk say, well, I can't believe in a God if he thinks this or thinks that. And I'm left thinking, can you only believe in a God who believes the things you believe? Who agrees with you on every point? What type of God would that be? So Herod is disturbed because this king is going to interrupt his little bit of a kingdom, and so he resists him. But the wise men, they turn their world upside down seeking for him. And when they come and they find him, they worship and they open their lives to him. This day of epiphany, that's the invitation for us. God has traveled into our world welcoming the ordinary folk next door and the folk from far, bringing them the light of Jesus Christ into their lives. We have His Word, we have His people, we have His charge and His commission. And are we willing this year to say, I don't just want you to bless what I'm doing, my plans, my agenda, but I want to worship you. I want to know you. I want to grow in you. I want you to transform me that I might be what you have called me to be, the people who take folk the last six miles, that they might come and worship to this Christ that has come. Those are words. But what will our response be? Will it this year to be say yes to Jesus Christ? I'm going to invite you now um, in the last part of the service to come and to light a candle. 
exactly what you mean by that is between you and God, but my invitation to you would be to think of part of your life, maybe something you're struggling with, and what you're saying is, Lord, come into this in this year. And I surrender to you. I look for your light. I look for you to come that I might grow. So both this, this, this is a prayer that is committing something to, to God. It might be something that's very difficult right now, something you're struggling with. But it's also an act that says, I am wanting you to come, that I might worship you even in this difficult